Hey, it's Sarah. Don't forget to check out the Mina Kimes Show featuring Lenny. The playoffs are here and Mina, her guests, and Lenny, her dog, are bringing their top-level analysis as they recap the turning points from the previous weekend and look ahead to the next round. Check out the Mina Kimes Show featuring Lenny wherever you get your podcasts. ESPN's Debatable is a digital exclusive series across the network's Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube channels and the ESPN app. And now it's available as a podcast. The innovative series is led by a rotating team of signature voices, including me, who take on the most compelling topics from around the sports world. Check out Debatable now wherever you listen to your podcasts. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. I'm Katie Milkman, and my current dilemma is finding a great way to celebrate my five-year-old's sixth birthday in social isolation during COVID. That is a tough one. Uh, And my first suggestion is one from the early days of COVID that maybe needs to make a comeback, the drive-by birthday party. Obviously a bit of work for the parents. They not only have to drive, but are probably going to do a lot of the decorating. Uh, But having your kids see this big stretch of friends in decorated cars with signs and balloons and all that stuff doing sort of a parade just for them, that still feels pretty special. Uh, even two plus years into the pandemic. Uh, Second idea is a little dicier, and you'll know that I don't have kids when I suggest it. But what about just asking your kid what they most want for their birthday? Because maybe you'll be totally surprised by the answer and can get creative with, you know, doing it or uh, be a little creative in adjusting it so it's feasible without a bunch of people. Um, If what they ask for is a giant party with all their friends, well, I got nothing for you just endless gifts. Just buy the love and happiness that you seek. (laughs) That's what she said. Hi, I'm Sarah Spain. And my dilemma is there is too much stuff to fit into this podcast. Uh, I've got interviews with two spectacular professors and thinkers on change, both big career change and life change and everyday habit change. Plus, I've got quick chats with a few folks I know who have taken a big leap and lived to share their advice about it. Plus, I've got some more info on the Do It crew slash the F*** It List crew. Uh, This is a supersized podcast. It is chock full of goodness. So hang on and let's get into it with my first guest, Herminia Ibarra, who literally said she was too busy with work to have any dilemmas which sounds like a dilemma to me, but I digress. Uh, She's a brilliant organizational behavior professor at London Business School, the author of Working Identity, Unconventional Strategies for Reinventing Your Career, and Act Like a Leader, Think Like a Leader. Uh, She was born in Cuba, got her MA and PhD degrees in organizational behavior from Yale, and taught for 13 years at Harvard Business School. Brilliant conversation. Hope you enjoy it. That's what she said. I want to start by asking how you got interested in career reinvention and sort of leadership development. Right. So, you know, I'm an academic, my field's organizational behavior, and I've always studied people's careers. And I used to study people's careers as they moved up uh, in organizations. And then at one point, everybody around me, my students, my friends, my family was looking to change careers and looking to do something different. And I thought, this is interesting. Why not study this instead? And uh, it turned out that a lot had been said and written about this, but 
Um, not many people had actually studied people going through it and especially kind of following them over time as opposed to asking them retrospectively, how did you get into this career? Uh, because when you do that, the story is all neat and perfect and, and obvious. But in fact, when you follow people through, it's a much more challenging uh, process, all full of uncertainty. And I find that so much in talking to successful people on this podcast. You ask for their failures and they cannot think of a one, usually because very successful people have a way of rewriting failures as lessons that they've learned. And the farther away they get from them, the easier it is to sort of forget that in that moment, it felt very scary and it felt very difficult. Um, so that's absolutely right. Of course, following along with these changes as they happen is so much more insightful for us. What are some of the biggest um fallacies that would you would say people have? Maybe the most widespread bad advice? Yeah, the most widespread bad advice is figure out what you want to do and then go ahead and do it, uh, which means that people stay in their heads, kind of back to your opening quote, that, and, and they're just kind of wheels turning. Who am I really? What What's my passion? What am I really meant to do? And there isn't a clear answer. So they stay stuck in something that isn't fulfilling. The biggest thing that I learned from this study of, um, which is what led to my book, Working Identity, is that people very often know exactly what they don't want anymore of, what hasn't mm. worked for them in the past, what isn't making them happy anymore. But they have a much harder time saying what they want to do instead. And so they think, because they haven't figured it out yet, that they shouldn't do anything at all because they're just going to do something stupid. And so it just builds up and builds up when, in fact, the way we really make career change is by taking small steps, getting involved in stuff, having a side gig or a side project. And over time, you figure out, do I like it? Can I be good at this? Do I like the people who are involved? You network in, you learn more about it. And that's actually the real process of making career change. And if you think about how many people we know that stay in a job that they complain about for years, and if you told them, hey, by the way, you're going to spend years doing something you hate because you're so afraid of change, that you prefer that to the to whatever you don't know, the unknown of what comes next, I don't know that they would choose that. It just sort of drags out over time, and then they realize that that's how they've spent uh, so much of their life. What do you think the most common fear people have is? Why is it that we cling to something we know we don't like instead of jumping into something we don't yet know is for us? Well, you know, I think people just don't know where to start. You know, that a metaphor of the leap is the wrong is is the wrong thing. You don't leap from A to B. You actually don't know what B is, and it's kind of a moving target. And so Obviously, they don't want to leap into the unknown. You know, most people, you know, unless you lose your job, you try to figure out the next thing while you're still in your job and making a living. And it's it's just they don't know what the first step is. And then our jobs are so overwhelming. They take so much time, you know, for a lot of people, just the thought of kind of carving out carving out time to explore something new is just, you know, they're juggling family, they're juggling work. That's hard to do. And the other thing is, when you're tired, when you're exhausted, when you're working really hard, you don't really have the bandwidth to get creative about yourself. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? You're just kind of tunneling through. And when you're working really hard like that, our networks also get a little inbred. They kind of get constricted. They're just the people we have to talk to to get things done. And that network also makes it less likely that you'll run into ideas, that you'll feel more expansive about possibilities. That's so true. 
That's why one of the best easy steps is to just start building out your network, get out of the house, meaning get out of the office or get out from, you know, in front of your Zoom and try to find ways to connect to people who are different or who you've lost touch with or, you know, who used to go to school with. And they'll be doing interesting things and that will provoke some thought and you'll get a little bit outside that inbred circle that just reinforces that kind of paralysis. Right. Join a club, do a new hobby, you know, be a part of a board at an art institute or something like that, that changes the people that you're around every day. I want to get back to that in a moment and, and the time that people have to make those differences. But you, you wrote an article for the Harvard Business Review, which is how I found you, the three phases of making a major life change. And in the story and in most of your work, you're sort of seeing this through the lens of career change. But would you say most of what you wrote applies to other big life changes? Most probably so. Um, most probably so. But, um, you know, that's not necessarily what I look at. Right. I mean, there is a cycle of transition that has to do with ending something. And that often starts with a bit of separation or getting some distance. And usually before you make a fresh start, there's kind of this ucky, yucky, liminal in-between period, the messy middle where you're you're neither here nor there. You haven't left the thing yet, but you haven't really started something new. I mean, you know, the process of relationships breaking up is a lot that right. way. You know, you're <laughs> you're you're kind of a bit in the middle at some point, maybe in the process of getting divorced, you haven't left the marriage yet, but you're not out of it yet. And so a lot of these life changes, and this is something that's really important in my work, um, involve being able to um, endure and make the most of this in-between period that is very challenging because it has a lot of uncertainty. You are truly neither here nor there. Um, but especially when it comes to career change, the great thing about it is that it kind of frees you from the rules of the old context that you were in. So you can be a little bit more playful. You can experiment more. You know, you give yourself permission to not commit to things right away because you're still in between. So mm -hmm. you can be a little bit more of a divergent thinker and get a little bit more creative, try out stuff that you have no intention of moving into, but just for the sake of exploring. And eventually, you know, as Steve Jobs very famously said, the dots start to connect. They will. Yeah. But it's not really clear during that time. And the worst you can do is try to be really rational about it. Um, you want to take advantage of that creative energy that gets freed up when there is a separation, both physical and psychological, from what you used to do or who you used to be. I imagine it's actually most helpful for people who have very set rules to their life for control freaks, but the, the most difficult for them to accept and embrace that moment instead of being terrified that things are not lining up the way that they had and their schedule has changed and everything else. So let's get to those three steps I mentioned that were featured in Herminia's article. So number one, separation. Here's what she writes, quote, research on how moving can facilitate behavior change suggests that people who found a new and different place to live during the pandemic may now have better chances of making life changes that stick. Why? Because of what's known as habit discontinuity. We are all more malleable when separated from the people and places that trigger old habits and old selves. Change always starts with separation. So COVID, work from home, changes to the workplace, these all provide a sort of organic and natural moment of separation, which we talk about. For a lot of people this over the last 
close to two years now, we will have been physically separated from the office. And the fact that we're not seeing the same people and not doing the same things and being exposed to other things has loosened our attachment to our jobs and to our organizations and made it easier to contemplate doing other things. And for those who have been lucky enough to not have too many little children running around uh, having to be homeschooled, there was also a little bit more time maybe to explore some things. So that certainly has created a sense of separation. Now, what's dangerous is that it's been a very long separation and we don't know how long it's going to last and we thought it was going to be shorter. So there may be kind of like new routines that have set in that now also have to be disrupted. You know, I think it might have been a lot easier <laughs> if this had ended last year mm-hmm. and all of our good resolutions right. found a, a, an outlet for expression. So listeners to the pod know about the lightning bolt effect, a major change in life made because of a diagnosis, a near-death experience, something else that drastically changes their perspective. And Herminia says, yes, those make you think, but you have to act. So much goes into habits staying changed. The myth of career change is um, here you are kind of carrying on and then a bolt of lightning hits you. And it could be, as you said, a death or an illness or something. And it makes you realize something fundamental and you change fundamentally. That's bullshit. That is, <laughs> you know, that is the oversimplification that you get, you know, five years later. That's how you summarize it to people mm. shorthand. But what actually happens, and this is what happens when you actually follow people as you go through it, um, lots of people have terrible things happen to them and then they go back to normal. And, you know, even people who study heart uh, surgery patients who have been told change your habits or you will die after the scare, many of them revert back to form. And so it is those jolts are important in that they make, they crystallize things Um, And often they create time to think, but if you don't act on it and back Mm -hmm. to acting, if you don't act on it, if you don't start exploring, if you don't develop some networks around that, if you don't keep keeping on, nothing happens, nothing Mm -hmm. happens, no matter how big the jolt. And that's, that's 100% true, right? That, that, that lightning bolt moment doesn't then fix it for you. It just offers you a chance to see things differently. And then you can make the choices after that to a make a change. You know, you know what? It gives you a narrative element for a good story. Um, right, later right, right. To explain what you've done. Right. Um, Which some research shows works very well for people if they're able to label the start of something, whether it's a new year or the first Monday or the start of spring or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, So so to wrap up the separation part, a part of it is uh, what you call our our prone. We're prone to narcissistic and lazy bias. Can you explain that? Right. So um, I've been studying networks for 35 years. (laughs) how people build them, how they use them. We know that networks are really vital for our careers, um, for moving up, but also for moving into new areas. You know, people have to tell you about ideas, options, job openings, you know, all of these different things. And the thing is that um, our networks 
are um, often created in our own image. And so we know that the two things that drive building relationships are similarity and proximity. That's why I call it mm-hmm. narcissistic and lazy. Yeah. <laughs> build relationships with people who are a lot like us, have the same interests, have the same background, speak the same language, more or less the same age. They get divided by gender, by race, you know, all those things. And absent that, because we're lazy and we have a lot of things going on and not a lot of time, we get to know the people who are around us because they're in the office next door. We just keep bumping into them. Mm -hmm. And and that definitely got disrupted during the pandemic. And so if we're not careful, and often the ones who are right near us in our neighborhood, in our office, they're similar to us in important ways. And so the two reinforce each other and create that kind of echo chamber where it's hard to think creatively and hard to think outside the box. And that's why when it comes to career change, it's really vital that you start moving outside that cozy circle because um, otherwise, you know, it's, it's not going to reinforce change. It's not going to give you new ideas. It's not going to inspire you to do something different. And in fact, what I saw in my study for a lot of people, it's friends and family had good intentions, but they really didn't want you to change. It was kind of right. scary that yeah. you would be moving into something very different or that you were going through a period in which you were so confused. And so it was really important to get out of that circle mm-hmm. for validation, for confirmation, for see, hearing the experiences of other people also going through the change process through the tr- and, and understanding, you know, when people read my book, the first thing they say is, oh my gosh, what was really valuable was knowing that I'm not crazy, that this yeah. is what people <laughs> go through as well. And so those narcissistic and lazy networks don't help us um, go through the process and get support for it. And they don't help us get new ideas because those who are already close to us tend to pigeonhole us. They don't see us. You know, say you're an accountant. It's very hard for the people around you to see you as an entrepreneur in fintech or something like that. They just, they pigeonhole you and it makes it harder for you to see outside of that. That's such a great point, too, because we're most likely go to the people close to us to ask about these big decisions, and they might not be the best served to actually help us make them. We'll get right back to the interview. But first, what is your favorite word? Liminality. Liminality. Okay, this is a great, rarely used word, at least for me. It means a state of transition between one stage and the next, especially between major stages in one's life or during a rite of passage. And it comes from liminal, 1870, from the Latin limen, threshold, cross piece, or sill. And when liminal first appeared in written use, it referred to something like a physical stimulus that was barely perceptible or just barely capable of eliciting a response. But now it mostly describes that state or place or condition of transition. Great word. Now let's get back to the interview. So let's talk about liminality, your favorite word, and the next step in this three-step phase, which is the idea of actually having time to experiment. And this particular pandemic, despite the constrictions of its length, has afforded us the separation of actual proximity, the separation of actual um, uh, circles, and because we have time to do stuff other than our regular job and, and regular hobbies, but also liminality. So many people found themselves with the time to cultivate new lo- knowledge and skills. And I love this line from your book, playfulness in a transition means giving yourself license not to be consistent and giving yourself the freedom to try things out without necessarily having a very specific purpose. It replaces the logic of efficiency with the logic of exploration. That's huge to me because for so many of us, we're so busy. I call my 
day, sort of a Jenga board and you take one piece out and everything falls out because everything's so scheduled. I don't have time to consider exploration as paramount over efficiency. So talk about how liminality is so important in us seeing our lives and our careers and, and changes we want to make differently. Okay. Right. So where to begin with that? Um, liminality simply means that you're in transition, that you're in between, that you're moving away from something, but you haven't completely left it, and that you're moving towards something and you don't know exactly what it is. So you're in between, you're indefined. Say so you're on, you know, classically, you're on sabbatical, you're on gardening leave, you're kind of, you're in between projects, you're in between. And that space, because it's a little bit unstructured, because it separates you from what you used to do and from the old networks, because you don't have the structure of the new yet, allows more of that freedom for playing around and for not necessarily being consistent, for being able to diverge. If you allow yourself, right? So some people do not. Some people say, gosh, I should focus. I should focus. Psst, dear listener. That one was me. I didn't make sourdough. I didn't learn to knit. I didn't spend more time resting and relaxing. I worked nonstop. So every minute that I would usually spend out of the house being social, going to restaurants, parties, trips, I worked. To the point that last February, I actually wondered if I even liked my life or my job, which were things I would never, ever have thought pre-COVID for even a second. Um, but eventually, the weather got better, I could do stuff outside with my friends again, got vaccinated, and I realized I still love my job. Um, I just literally can't be trusted without scheduled social interruptions to stop my productivity and give myself a break. Did I learn a bigger lesson and back off working nearly every moment of the day? No, I did not. Baby steps. I'm working on it. Back to the interview. One of the things I talked about when the um, coronavirus first hit, I wrote an article about liminality um, in the Harvard Business Review. And, you know, for some people, what was most important about that in-between time was just to kind of rest because they were exhausted. Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes you're exhausted, you need to sleep, you need to rest, you need to potter around. You know, I remember one person telling me, I just had to potter around my garden for two months because I was, I was so close to being burned out. So that's a way of making use of that. For other people, it created space to um, take online courses, to dabble in things. You know, in some of the cases, they weren't, these were not necessarily next careers, but there was a freeing aspect to it. It allows you to see that you have other facets to you, that other things are possible. And, and, and they were first steps towards perhaps a more serious exploration of an alternative. And so um, I guess what I would say is, these these in-between periods are gifts, even though they bring a lot of uncertainty, because they loosen up all of the rigidities and habits that keep us stuck uh, in the past. Now, that said, um, this period is pretty particular because it isn't usually these these periods are quite they're shorter, they can be they're more fixed. Now in career change, they can take two or three years. But this period has been a weird one because we're all kind of going back to work, but often from our homes. And so it's not, it's also neither here nor there in a different kind of way. And, and, you know, and some people have beaten themselves up for not being able to do more with it. Mm -hmm. And what I would say is it's just really important to go with where you are. Maybe what you need to do 
with the not having the commute is rest until you're more rested and then you get more creative. Or maybe what you need to do is is more of a, you know, kind of pursuing a hobby or or maybe you have some ideas about things and you can start to pursue those. And this is one of the themes that you wanted to explore. What's important is to, to understand the value of the little steps. Um, mm. So often we say to ourselves, I really want to explore this, but I need a big chunk of time and I don't have that. Right. You know, I need to reserve a day a week for this or I need to, you know, and you'll be waiting years until that day of the week comes. Right. Say to yourself, I'm going to, you know, kind of sneak out little bits of time here and there to explore this and to do it in a fun way, to start by connecting to a person or having a lunch. One step leads to another. And once you get hooked, those bigger chunks of time start to appear magically. Right. And a lot of research shows that too, that we have this all or nothing approach to changing or to setting a goal. And then when we trip up, we just kind of wipe it all out and say we're done trying because we haven't achieved the big thing, not recognizing that making those smaller goals would have been a better choice. Um, the final uh, step is reintegration. And um, you talk about how our ability to take advantage of discontinuing a habit or starting a new routine depends on whether we use that little bit of window uh, after we've, we've changed that routine. So um, what would you say is the best approach to someone saying, okay, I'm really good right after the new year, or I'm great when I start a diet, or I'm great when I uh, decide to make a change at work in my work habits, but it's hard for me to sustain that. Yeah, that's us all. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> it, 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 it's all of us. It's always, um, well, you know, there's two big challenges. One is getting started. And uh, presumably, if we're here, we did get started. And the other is keeping up the momentum um, when, you know, we're always going to have uh, steps backwards where we, you know, we mess it up. Or, um, and, and I, I think, you know, the, the, all, all change processes are different. So going on a diet is different than changing career. Right. Um, you know, in, in what I have seen in my case is that as people start making these small steps towards exploring alternative possibilities for their career, so the getting started is really important, um, they become self-reinforcing because you want to be part of that network. You want to be in contact with those people. You compare and contrast. You see yourself in the old and in the new. You're more excited here. There's more possibility. There's more promise. And so those things make it be uh, self-sustaining. There's, you know, there's different ways in which people get into trouble. Sometimes you experiment with a bunch of different things and then you can't make up your mind or, mm -hmm. you, kind of, you know, really in that non-committal mode, leave all my doors open uh, mode for a very long time. And at some point, often something pushes a decision. There's a deadline. There's an, you know, an ultimatum or a, you know, a period within which you have to decide that pushes is, and that's helpful. But um the, the, that, um, you know, getting started on the resolution and reverting to form, I see less of that in, in, in career change. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, what is the danger? And I did talk about that in that article. <laughs> you know, I, when I wrote it, we were all thinking we were going to be back to work as normal. Um, in September, and nobody knew that Omicron was coming along <laughs> mm. to knock things off next. And so what I meant to say is, you know, if after this period, you're back to the same old, 
just make sure that you find small ways to maintain those networks and to maintain those projects, because otherwise all of that reflection will have been for naught. And so I guess the, the answer would be continue with the small steps because right. otherwise, um, you know, we just get inundated with right. the day-to-day demands of work and life. And this is a great step, even just listening to this, because it's so much about intentionality and awareness. If we're actually conscious of whether we're reverting back, it allows us the opportunity to maybe not do so. Okay, last question, because I have to let you go here. Time. Whenever our people are listening to uh, advice on things like this, whether it's how to be happier or change your habits or switch your career, so often it feels like it requires the time for exploring other hobbies or allowing yourself to sit and think. In many ways, the pandemic offered some people that, but I think others might listen and say, I don't know if I have time my, between my kids and my work and my spouse and everything else to, to, to give myself the chance to see if there's something else. Uh, do you have advice for how to, how to, what you would say to someone who, who offers that up potentially as an excuse for staying in the spot they're in? Yeah, nobody has time, right? So nobody has time. <laughs> uh, it's all a matter Screw of, your excuse. <laughs> it's all a matter of what becomes urgent, right? So a person who says that hasn't reached the urgency point yet. At some point, you reach it. Um, now, you might reach it sooner if you actually make the time to explore because then that new thing becomes more attractive and starts to pull you and create more en- more urgency. If you don't, the urgency might come because you're fired or because something happens. Um, but, you know, it, we all take diff- you know, different amounts of time to start to feel enough urgency to kind of get moving. Um, but um, the long and the short of it is small steps don't necessarily take time. We Mm. imagine it takes time because this is non-habitual behavior. Our habitual behaviors take a lot of time, but we just clock into them um, without mindfulness, almost in 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 a habitual, unconscious way. Let me empty my inbox. Those are all things that take a lot of time. It's not that mm. time. It's we want to do things when we feel pressed for time. We want to do things habitually. We want to do things without too much thinking, without having to clear the desk, without having to have that sense of a big swath of time. And, and so, you know, take a weekend, uh, do, you know, do it over a holiday, um, and, and, and it's a kind of a more of a clearing the desk decks mentally to create yeah. that mental space and bandwidth to start small. That's fantastic advice. I know you're super busy. I really appreciate you coming on. This was really insightful, fantastic stuff. Thank you so much. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. That's what she said. Fantastic, super insightful stuff from Herminia, right? It applies not just to career changes, but so useful in life in general, especially the stuff about expanding your circle of influence, trying new habits, joining new communities. Um, I think we get really comfortable, really stuck in our ways as we get older. And it's important to make time to explore and expand and be open to brand new interests in people. I think, you know, she made it quite clear how big the payoffs can be when we do that. Um, But let's say you're not in need for a big career change or a major life shift. You just want to be more cognitive, more aware of the everyday habits and practices that make up your routine. 
And my next guest is going to help with that because Dr. Katie Milkman is an American economist. She's professor at the Wharton School. She did her undergrad at Princeton, her doctorate at Harvard, and she's the author of How to Change the Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be. And our conversation shows you it's as much about just intentionality and awareness of why you do things. Uh, that's the first start to being able to change them. That's what she said. So I heard Katie Milkman on one of my favorite podcasts with my former podcast guest, Dr. Lori Santos, who I love, who I find fascinating. And Katie was talking about another topic that I talk about a lot on the podcast that I love and find fascinating, and that is changing our behaviors and habits. And her new book, or newish book, How to Change the Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be, covers so many things. Let's start with the fresh start effect, because it's something that um, comes up in a lot of, of, of studies. A lot of people, of course, see New Year's as a chance or your 40th birthday or something like that, or even what we talk about in the lightning bolt effect. If you get a bad diagnosis or someone tells you you're pre-diabetic or something, and that gives you that snap of the fingers that makes you feel like now's the time. But others would argue, you know, the best time to start is right now and today. And while that sounds good, a lot of people can't wrap their heads around that. And your studies sort of tell us how just even if it's sort of arbitrary, if we decide for ourselves that a date has special meaning, it might be more likely that we can get something to stick. Yeah. So so the work I've done on the Fresh Start Effect looked at moments in our lives that feel like chapter breaks, where we um, have this tendency, research has shown, to think about time, not linearly, but rather as sort of a series of chapters or episodes in our life, like we're a character in a book. Yeah which I think is really poetic. But also yeah. when I look back and, you know, you have to tell your story so often and you think that is how you think, right? You're like, oh, these are the college years. These are the years living in Boston. You don't you don't say, um, you know, this was <laughs> week one, week two, week three, et cetera. Um, but but the, where we put those bookends in our lives uh, affects when we feel like we have a new beginning. And when we feel like we have a new beginning, it turns out research I've done with Heng Chen Dai of UCLA and Jason Reese of Wharton um, shows that, we feel like we have a clean slate and we feel like because we've turned the page on a new chapter, whatever failures we had, say last year um, or, you know, in the last city we were living in, that was the old me. And this is the new me and the new me, it's going to be different. And so we're more optimistic and we also may be more likely to step back and think big picture at these chapter breaks about our goals and our lives. And we see that that leads to increases in goal pursuit. And we look at this in data set after data set and see the same patterns, whether it's Google searches for the term diet, um, visits to a university gym, or uh, when people set goals on a popular goal setting website about everything from their health to their finances to their education. We see all of those patterns increase at fresh start dates, which include, of course, New Year's. That's sort of mm -hmm. the big, the mother of all fresh starts. Um, but also at the start of a new week, the start of a, a new month, um, following the celebration of a birthday, um, and following certain holidays that we associate with fresh starts. So think more Labor Day and less Valentine's Day. Right. Um, and we can also highlight dates on the calendar to people that feel naturally like fresh starts that they might not have noticed and see similar benefits. So if we, for instance, highlight the first day of spring, rather than showing someone a calendar that that doesn't have that labeled on there, maybe that labels it in a trivial way, like the third Thursday in March instead of the first day of spring, that becomes an attractor. People are more excited when invited to choose a date, when they might want to start receiving, for instance, reminders about their goals, or uh, when they're invited to start saving for a 401k, if they could do it at the beginning of spring, as opposed to what might feel like an arbitrary date if it's unlabeled. Yeah. 
you see these big increases in engagement. So that's that's the fresh start effect in a nutshell. And then we can use that to our benefit, but also what's interesting is um, how you tied the way we see that fresh start as a new identity. It's not, I'm someone who diets, I'm someone who doesn't smoke, I'm someone who eats well. It's, I am a healthy eater, I am a non-smoker. It's the identity of who you are and not what you do. And that seems to tie in um, to, to a, a later discovery that you make about how increasing people's confidence in themselves and asking them to give advice to others about good choices actually makes them more likely to make those choices. It feels tied to me in the sense of um, you've given someone the idea of, of their identity of being someone who is an expert and someone who accomplishes those things. If you have more confidence that you can accomplish something and you're more willing to give it a try, that's really important for getting started, um, which is one of the reasons fresh starts are so useful for getting us started. But I love that you also mentioned this research that uh, Lauren Eskris Winkler from Northwestern University has led on advice giving, which I've gotten to be a part of. And she's shown that when we are invited to give advice to other people, uh, about a goal that maybe we're also trying to achieve, it actually improves our own outcomes. And one of the key reasons it seems to do that is by boosting our confidence. Someone else asking me for wisdom makes me feel like I must not be such a schmo. You know, somebody <laughs> thinks that I have something worthy and worthwhile to offer. Maybe I actually do uh, kind of have my stuff together and maybe I could make a contribution. And it also leads you to introspect more deeply than you might otherwise about what solutions could be useful. And then once you've advised someone else to do something, you're going to feel hypocritical if you don't take the same actions right. yourself. So I, that is also, I think, related to believing in yourself. But there are other components to that as well, including this sort of search for information. And um, and so I, I think I think it's a combination. I definitely wouldn't want to say it's all attitude that leads to success. Right. And in fact, the fresh start effect doesn't get us very far in many cases, which is the reason, it, you know, a lot of people heard I was writing a book. They assumed it would be about the fresh start effect because it's one of the topics I've studied that's gotten the most um, media attention and people find really exciting. And I said, you know, I wouldn't want to write a book about that because it gets us started. And then we fall on our faces right. if we don't have structures in place and scaffolding set up to ensure, you know, we will actually achieve the goal we are now motivated to try to pursue. And just talking to another expert, she was like, it's bullshit. Like you start, but then it doesn't promise you anything about finishing and keeping it up. So it's so true that, yes, you can use those dates or those moments to, to really push yourself if you finally need to do something that you've been putting off. But once you get started, that date means nothing because now it's two weeks away, three weeks away. Yeah, um, you got to have a plan and you right. have to have tools that you can use to actually persist because most things aren't a one and done. One of the most totally sensical things that you wrote about in the book that I hadn't thought about, but that totally checks out that allows you to maybe sustain success is a move to move into a new home, move into a new office, to be forced to completely change your commute, or in the case of the pandemic, maybe not have a commute at all, and completely change your daily behaviors. Because so much of what we do every day, we have zero recognition is just already hard hardwired into us. When we see that thing, it makes us do this thing. When we get to this place, it makes us choose this thing. And we don't often have intentionality about that until everything gets changed. And all of a sudden we get to pick for ourselves, where do we get our coffee? Where do we get our breakfast? What do we do for lunch? Who do we talk to? Um, is there any way to artificially manufacture that? 
Yeah, that's a really interesting question. By the way, I should say I, I love that work too. And I, um, Wendy Wood of the University of Southern California has done this just fascinating research showing how important a move can be to disrupting your bad habits because you you find yourself in new circumstances. You know, the Dunkin' Donuts that was calling you in the morning for a you know bad habit breakfast uh, is no longer on your commute. So I guess what, and and that's the kind of thing that changes, right? Those, you have to create new rhythms and new routines. You have a new environment giving you cues. And, and so that's a blank slate to work from. I think you can create some of that by thinking like, what are the things that are in my environment, right? That a move would shake up that would be productive and then trying to just do that without moving. So for instance, say there's a Dunkin' Donuts on your commute that's (laughs) calling to you. Um, and you recognize that, could you actually change your commute so that it isn't right any any longer on your path, whether mm-hmm. that's, uh, you know, you're going to take a different subway line that stops somewhere else. So you have a different right. route to your office um, or, or what. But, can, you know, can you re-architect a commute that has bad temptations on the way? Similarly, in your home, are there things that if you moved into a new home would be you would be forced to um, reckon with and that might be structured better? So what are the things in your in your life that are holding you back? Is it like a packed pantry that's filled with goodies? I'm, I'm focusing on food cravings right now, but you could mm-hmm. also think about all sorts of other things in life, whether your home office setup is well-structured for product, you know, productive, calming work, whether or not you have an exercise, a uh, bit of exercise equipment in your house so that it's really easy and convenient to get fit. Um, so... I guess the key thing I would say is, can you look for cues from the environment that triggered you to engage in behaviors that are counterproductive and a move might disrupt those, but can you disrupt them some other way without a move? Right. One thing I find is if I go on vacation, particularly somewhere where I'm doing a lot of walking, a walking city where I noticed everything because I'm on vacation. So I have the time to look at every store and every shop front. When I come home, I notice things in my own neighborhood that have become sort of wallpaper. For whatever reason, that store, that shop has just sort of never caught my eye. And I see things differently when I come back. So maybe part of it is just an intentionality about the space you're in and the spaces near you to say, I've always walked by that health food store and skipped it because I've seen this restaurant that I recognize and know a Chipotle or whatever it is and gone there instead. And so part of it is just reading your book or listening to conversations and then choosing to see the spaces that you're in differently because we do get so used to it. I, in the past, created little trays in my bathroom, ones for morning and ones for night. And I have to look at the tray so that I take the vitamins that otherwise I forget to take. I don't have a problem taking the vitamins. I just forget to do it because it's not a habit yet. So when I put it in the tray and I have to say, did I cover everything in the night tray, the brushing of the teeth and the creams and the vitamins? Um, And that was just changing the things in front of me, making them look different so that I would see them. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and I think you're you're building on a really important principle from research and behavioral science, which says it needs to be really easy to do the things that are good for us to do. And it needs to sort of fit into our existing routines as much as possible. And you're thinking carefully, you know, you're designing well, just like, you know, Apple would design a great product if they wanted to get you to figure out how to use your new iPhone and install something. Um, You know, somebody thought really carefully about like, what's the most likely thing you'll swipe, you're thinking carefully about like, what is the environment where I need to take these pills? What am I going to see? How's it going to draw my attention? So I look and do the right thing at the right moment. So that absolutely is um, great advice. Good design thinking. 
Yeah. Speaking of sort of designing with the intent to 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 best take advantage of people's uh, habits or or tendencies, tell me about the Google Moments engine, and is there any way we could possibly do that for ourselves? Yeah, this was something that was really fun to learn about. Actually, when I was doing research for my book, I called up. Um, Prasad Seti, who had been a senior uh, people analytics manager at Google about a decade ago when I visited the company and gave a talk about some of my research on ways we could help people achieve their goals more and get them more motivated and more likely to, you know, take advantage of health offerings, retirement savings, benefits, and so on at the company. And Prasad had asked a question that actually started my research on the Fresh Start Effect. He asked me if there were ideal moments when we could use these tools that I'd been studying and that my colleagues had been studying to help Googlers, that's what they call themselves, um, achieve mm -hmm. their goals at work. Like when should the company, if they're they're ready, they're in, engaged, they're excited, they want to roll out all of these tools that we've been studying, but like when should they do it? When would people leap up and take advantage? It was such a great question, right? So I went and did this research on the Fresh Start Effect as a result, and he... Of course, we stayed in touch and he knew about those results and I would presented them there. I called him up at the time I was writing my book and I said, like, did you guys do anything with this? Did it turn out to be useful to you? And he said, oh, yeah, actually, we built a moments engine and it uh, triggers different, um, you know, nudges to people and offerings to our employees at different points in their careers and in their lives based on this idea of fresh starts in part. So that, that you sort of get the right nudges at the right moments, mm. whether it's right after a promotion, a nudge to revisit your, and I actually don't know all the specific details of what these nudges are. So I'm making this up, but, right. um, but you know, a nudge to uh, revisit your employment benefits and make sure you don't want to change any of your elections or uh, at, at, to, you know, think about manager training now that you've gotten that promotion or at a work anniversary. So they, they've thought very strategically about what are the fresh start moments that seem most relevant to their employees? What are the things they want to nudge them to do? And then they time them appropriately. So I thought that was just really neat. And certainly, again, I don't know, I don't, I don't have that algorithm. So I don't know right. everything that's in it. So we can't copy it completely. But you could certainly think about setting up reminders on your calendar. For instance, if you like me live by a calendar right. um, for things that you want to take action on at moments when you think you'll be most um, motivated and and compelled to do it right think about like right after you finish your taxes are there financial goals you might want to start pursuing because that'll be top of mind or when you celebrate a birthday uh, are there things you want to sort of put on your list I've actually always tied doctor's appointments my you know annual checkups to birthdays hmm. for my whole life right like this is something you do as a baby yeah <laughs> yeah you're, you're, keep it up I hope you go to a different yeah. doctor though uh, I then, do yeah, I don't yeah, I no good. longer see good. my pediatrician, pediatrician. <laughs> it's been um, a while I also wanted to quickly note something that doesn't often come up, which is the ability to recognize a reset that reset that can negatively change habits. We so often think about um, a life change that allowed us to to reconsider and make better choices. Um, what are some examples of times when people don't realize that they've changed negatively because of something? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And it's making me think of this work that um, my former student, Hang Chen Dai, did for her dissertation. We had studied Fresh Starts together. And when it was time for her to think about what was she going to do independently um, for this you know, massive research project, she decided she wanted to look at a phenomenon we hadn't studied, which was um, 
when this might backfire, when it might be harmful to have a fresh start or a disruption. And she also moved um, a little bit away from these moments on calendars that help us reset and started looking at performance resets. So whenever, you know, we're tracking, you know, quarterly performance or monthly sales or, um, you know, a player's shoot three point uh, scoring average, those kinds of statistics that track our performance get reset at regular intervals, right? And she was interested in whether that serves as a fresh start and if it can ever be detrimental, mm. actually, to have such a reset. And her theory, and this is also what was borne out by her data, is that resets are really helpful when we aren't hitting all our goals, when we're falling a little bit below the bar and we want to improve our performance because they can give us that renewed sense of, okay, yeah, that was a bad quarter or that was a bad year or, you know, mm -hmm. whatever. And I'm going to set that aside. It's the old me and the new me can do better. But when you've been knocking it out of the park, when things have been going great, then a reset actually could be this kind of disruption, discontinuity and identity that's going to be harmful. Because actually what you want to do is hold on to that fabulous performance streak that you've got going as opposed to feeling disconnected from it and like a new person. Yeah. So um, she's shown this in a bunch of um, experiments she's run in the laboratory where people are, you know, trying to perform well on little tasks and getting points. But most interestingly, she looked at major league baseball data and looked at players who got traded um, in the major leagues in the middle of a season and how that affected their batting average and also how it um, depended on whether they were having a strong or weak season to date. And she had this really clever way of dealing with um, th the fact that a, a move comes with a lot of baggage besides just uh, feeling like a fresh start. So she looked at a comparison between players who were traded within league versus across leagues. And mm -hmm. it turns out if you're traded within league, you get to hold on to all your performance statistics so far. So there's no reset of performance statistics. But um, if you're traded across leagues, everything's wiped clean. You have to build up your batting average from scratch. And what she found is a big difference in those um, groups. If you get that wipe clean reset, it improves your performance relative to people who are traded and, and don't get a reset if you've been having a rough season, but it hurts your performance relative to people who get traded and don't get a reset if you've been having an above average season. Right. So I thought that was a really fascinating way yeah, of so illustrating. The, the players this. who were doing well when they got traded and it wiped clean their stats, they performed worse after that. The players who were doing poorly when they got traded and it got wiped clean, they performed better because they thought, okay, new opportunities. So it is fascinating to sort of, and in our own lives, we have to be able to recognize whether you actually moved closer to the Dunkin' Donuts <laughs> and right. that changed your habit. What's so hard is I think we do get so used to things so quickly that it's hard to even look back and recognize. I think for some of us, even during the pandemic, it's been long enough now that we're like, what was I doing every day before the pandemic and how have my habits or everyday behaviors changed? Um, a couple more I want to get to quickly. The idea of cash commitment devices. This was fun for me to read about because a couple years ago, my friends and I came up with the concept of we had to work out at least four times a week and we had to send each other a selfie um, during the workout. And we created a private Facebook page so no one else could see them. And we had to post them or text each other, whatever. And instead of the original ideas, which I thought of, which was, you know, someone has, uh, when you put money in, if you miss a, a week and, and you end up buying everybody beers at this event that we go to every year or things like that. And my husband said, no one's going to care enough about that couple bucks. You have to do the opposite. So instead, you had to donate money to your least favorite politician and you had to post a picture of this of the receipt of that to your Facebook so everybody saw that you gave to, you know, 
I believe Rick Santorum at the time was the one that was standing out for me. Um, by the way, feel free to Google that name in case you don't know how that works. Um, and uh, and it worked so much better than the positive reinforcement of like, well, everybody likes to buy people beers. Um, so that 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 concept I didn't realize had elevated to being full apps and services that you can use. So tell us about cash commitment devices. Yeah, absolutely. So cash commitment devices are penalties you opt into that will um, make it sting more if you don't achieve your goals, right? So you say, I'm going to find myself X dollars if I don't get to the gym four times this month and, right. and post a selfie and you declare a referee who will hold you accountable. And there's multiple websites that I know of stick.com with a double K at the end, second one for contract and beminder.com are the two I know the most about that exist um, and have, you know, features to help you set this all up and you can choose a charity you hate. So they have charities on either <laughs> side of hot button issues so that it'll really sting. And, you know, this is effective just because in general incentives work, right? There's a reason that you get a, a ticket and if you park in the wrong place or if you right. speed, like we understand how incentives work. It's just unusual to be incentivizing yourself. You're setting up your own <laughs> reward penalty system, but they're very, very effective. So research shows that, for instance, giving people access to these kinds of cash commitments who want to quit smoking increases quit rates by about 30% wow. over and above what you'd see if you just gave them sort of standard tools for trying to quit. Yeah, so it's really powerful. I think people don't use this enough, partly because they don't really want to sacrifice their <laughs> right. money. It's but terrifying. you're absolutely <laughs> Yeah, no it is. You can see why you have to really it, this has to be a really high priority for you to do that. Um and you also have to recognize that without these kinds of penalties for yourself, you may not get where you want to get to. Um Yeah, for sure. But yeah. Very effective. You have to set the stakes pretty high if you've tried a million other ways and it hasn't worked out. Sometimes you have to change the stakes. Talk about cues um, and how you were sort of surprised to learn that a colleague of yours thought they were perhaps the most important in terms of trying to change behavior. Yeah, this is really interesting because I think often when we think of our goals, the the actions we want to take to achieve them, we think of, of barriers being things like, you know, oh, my self-control struggle or my time limits, you know, like life is just busy or my habits, maybe even my confidence. But I think one that we overlook a lot is just simply forgetting um, that life life is busy and and it's not necessarily the time constraints, but the attention constraints that can keep us from achieving important goals to us. And there's this um, wonderful research by Peter Golwitzer from New York University showing that when we make plans to achieve our goals, we can really help ourselves remember and follow through at a vastly higher rate if we structure them in a specific way where there's actually, um, he, he sort of has a formula. It's like you say, if X happens, then I will do Y and X is your cue. So like if it's 3 p.m., then I will go to the gym. Mm -hmm. Or if it's, um, you know, you might want to constrain it a little more. If it's, or you could say, if it's after lunch, then I'm going to go for a run or I'm going to meditate or I'm going to open my Duolingo app and do language practice. So it can be a time, it could be a place, like whenever I pass, um, you know, CVS, I will, you know, poke my head in and pick up uh, a new jug of milk <laughs> for my right. family, <laughs> right? So you, it doesn't have to be, it, there's lots of things that can serve as cues, but having that concrete cue as opposed to an abstract plan turns out to have a really big impact on follow through um, because a cue serves as a trigger to your mind, just like, right, having a cue to go on stage for an actor reminds them like, yeah, oh, that's your line. Like, it's you now. Mm -hmm. um, this is how memories are stored. They're stored and encoded in cues. The cue serves as the trigger. And also once you've 
um, come up with this kind of cue-based plan, it's really, it's not abstract anymore. Like, oh, I'm going to go to the gym more. I'm going to, uh, you know, meditate more. There's a moment when you've said you will do it and you're going to feel hypocritical going back to something I've mentioned before. Cognitive dissonance is this very right. powerful tool. We don't, we don't like to sort of say one thing and do another. Um, so if you've made that concrete plan, now there's a concrete failure that you're staring down if you don't follow through. So right. cues are just really, really handy tools. And when we plan, we should always include that that cue in the plan. And there's a lot of things at play there. One of them is specificity, right? Of I'm going to get milk later is very different than after I pick up my kid from school, I'm going to pass the grocery store on the way home and I'm going to get milk there. Then exactly. when you pick up the kid from school, you think, what did I say I needed to do before I went home? Oh, that's right. I have to go get milk versus abstract. And then the other that you pointed to is that sort of like saying we're going to do something and wanting to follow through. We'll get right back to the interview. But first, what's your favorite word? Smidgen. Smidgen. I just thought about it and I realized that I never, ever say smidgen. I only say smidge. Like uh, more cake, just a smidge. Uh, same for you guys. Do you guys say smidgen or smidge? I just say smidge. Anyway, it's from 1845. It means a little bit uh, and is likely an alteration of English dialect word smitch, which meant a soiling mark. Smidgen. I got to start saying smidgen more. Speaking of great words. You're going to learn today. The word of the week is an obsolete 13th century word that I need to add to my rotation because busy overworked. Those are just not hitting anymore. I use them so often they've lost their meaning. So from now on, when I'm exhausted from too much work, I'm going with forswunk from four plus swunk, which is the past participle of swink, meaning toil, drudgery, work. And it's just fun to say forswunk. So in a sentence, I was so completely and utterly forswunk, I couldn't even make it to Leah's birthday happy hour last night. For swunk. So fun. Now let's get back to the interview. Okay, so quickly, I want to talk easy goals and big goals and how easy goals, we can really use the social influence of others to keep us on track. And then big goals, sometimes if we look to other people, we can get really discouraged because we expect maybe the end result to be there immediately. And someone who's so great at it is not maybe the best person to teach us how to make our way towards that transition. Can you talk about that difference? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, there's this large research literature showing that um, the people around us, and this is very intuitive too, of course, um, they shape our outcomes in important ways that we look to them. Um, and they and they sort of show us what's normal, what's feasible. And also, um, we want to fit in. So if you end up randomly assigned to a college roommate who's a better student, you do better in school, for instance. Um, so we're shaped by the people around us. And we can harness that to try to achieve goals at a higher rate in general by trying to construct social groups that who will support our goals, right? This is a very common and useful strategy. And you can deliberately copy and paste the hacks that other people are using. Right. And often we don't do that enough. But you point out that um, there are situations where it can be harmful. And that's absolutely right. When, when the, the reference point you're trying to sort of look to and admire and learn from is too far ahead, it can be demotivating. And one of my favorite studies on this actually tried to use the, the finding I mentioned that having a top performing roommate can be helpful to your grades. If you know somebody is a little better student, you do better. Um, if you notice they're studying on Thursday nights instead of going out partying and you follow suit, well, 
some researchers who noticed this, um, what the, and, and I should say led by Scott Carell from UCSD, they came up with, uh, I think, a really creative idea, which was why don't we actually try to engineer roommate assignments to help students who are most at risk and give them the best chance of not dropping out and doing well in school. Let's assign sort of the top performing students who are com- incoming freshmen to the bottom performers as roommates. So they'll so pull up the bottom tail, mm-hmm. essentially. And what was fascinating is it turned out they did this experimentally, thinking they were going to establish its validity and become the gold standard for ways that lots of organizations and, um, and schools could improve the outcomes of the most at risk. It actually backfired. <laughs> Doing this r- reduced the performance of those th- the most at-risk students. Uh, and when they dug into the data, what they found is that basically the, the roommate pairings, they were so different, right? There was no common ground. And that instead of rubbing off on, you know, the top performers didn't rub off on their bottom performer roommates, they just didn't talk to each other. And like, and now you have no social support. So there is this degree. And there's other research that well, it reminded them of their inferiority, right? Because there was such a gap, they thought, well, I'll never be as good as that person. And they're so far away that I'm just not going to try. I think there's other research that points to that as a a key barrier that may have been at play in, in this setting, for sure. So there is this sort of if you surround yourself with achievers, people who are doing well on a goal you have, that can be really motivating. But if they're so far ahead, right? Like if you're starting trying to start a small business and you, you wanna you may not want to hang out with people who already have like giant established enterprises. Jeff Bezos. Like, right, I mean. right. That would be a really bad social <laughs> reference. But like and, and even somebody who's got a big local business that's thriving, it might be people who are just a little ahead on the learning curve. Um, so that they have, you know relevant knowledge and and um, relevant experiences, and they aren't a million miles outside of your um, day to day. So that when you try to emulate what's working for them, it might work for you too, and you won't be demoralized. So many of these things are so helpful. Before I let you go, I want to ask you something that's not necessarily in the book, but I'm sure your your research and your insight might offer something up. So we learn even that people put off pleasurable things. Um, sometimes it's because of this idea of unlimited time. They talk about people who live um, somewhere with lots of beautiful landmarks and tourist places often go to them less often than people visiting who have just a short time because they think, I only have three days. I'm going to see everything Chicago has to offer. And people who live in Chicago are like, oh, I've actually never even been to that place. So sometimes that's why we put off pleasurable things. How would you suggest someone tackle the idea of a race, an instrument, a language, um, a trip, something that they've always wanted, but for whatever reason, they haven't actually just started doing? Yeah, it's a great question. I think one of the most important insights really comes from research by Al Bandura of Stanford University, who's uh, um, did fabulous work on the importance of sub-goals. Um, when we have a big goal, how critically important it is to break that big goal down. So if your big goal is, I want to learn a musical instrument, that is very vague and distant. But if you break it into sub-goals, like I want to take one lesson a week, um, mm-hmm. or I want to spend one hour watching YouTube videos a week and, and with the instrument, you know, it doesn't have to be a lesson, but you know, what, it, or, or three hours or, right. so think about the time interval you're going to spend on it at a high frequency or a reasonable frequency um, and exactly what is the action you're going to take to get to that long-term goal. When you break it down into something bite-sized, it turns out you, one, feel like it's more approachable. So you 
um, are more likely to follow through. And there's lots of research showing that now. And then um, in addition to that, you uh, again have this commitment to something that you're going to get started and then you can build a snowball effect. So I think that's that's my number one piece of advice is think about what's the sub goal that you are going to try to achieve on more like a daily or weekly basis rather right. than a distant abstract long-term objective. Right. What's the first step or the first three steps toward the thing that you want instead of the thing that you want? And then maybe the the research you did on, on bundling and the idea that we don't make the short-term habits pleasurable in any way. Um, and then we were curious why we don't get to that final goal because we're looking for long-term benefit and we don't even address the fact that there is some short-term pain. Yeah, absolutely. So you're alluding to this research that um, I love that uh, I at Fishbach at the University of Chicago and Caitlin Woolley of Cornell have shown we think we should take the most efficient route to a goal, like you know, trying to get in shape, go straight for the Stairmaster. It'll burn the most calories per minute. I'm not sure if that's true, by the way, but that's <laughs> making that up. But it sounds, it seems like yeah, a fairly it seems efficient. like it's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's not that fun though. So uh, most of us think efficiency. A few people think fun, like, oh, let me go to Zumba class with a friend. I'll love it. Um, it's not as efficient per minute, but the interesting thing is that the people who pursue goals in ways that are fun actually persist longer. And if you encourage people try to find a fun way to pursue your goals, they persist longer. Mm. Um, and I've studied one specific way to do that, which is through something I call temptation bundling, which is only letting yourself enjoy some temptation um, while doing something that would otherwise feel like a chore. So like you can only binge watch uh, Bridgerton episodes while you're <laughs> exercising at the gym, or you're only allowed to listen to your favorite podcast while you're doing household chores or pop your favorite bottle of wine when cooking a fresh meal for your family. You know, you can figure out what the right bundle is for you, but it changes the dynamics so that the thing that, you know, it's my long-term goal, but I'm not enjoying it while I'm pursuing it becomes something I look forward to. Yeah. Some of that inclined treadmill paired with the new Queer Eye is what I've been doing. Uh, those, <laughs> Perfect. those steps. And that's the only time I get to watch watch the guys. Um, thank you so much. The book was fantastic. I've, I'm so fascinated by this stuff. And a lot of your research was really new and interesting. And I appreciate you coming on and talking to me. I really appreciate you having me. Thanks for the great interview. That's what she said. Awesome stuff from Katie Milkman, especially at the end there, sort of tackling a big dream or goal or project by committing to the small first steps and mapping out a plan of the little things you need to do to eventually get to where you want to be. And I think so many more people would do the, the things they dream of or they need to if they approached it smarter instead of with more vigor, right? It's easy to burn out when our expectations are unrealistic, but mapping out a realistic way to get closer to what we want, whether that's a little bit of saved money every day, a jog that gets longer and stronger by just a quarter mile every week, or, you know, a cooking habit that starts out really simple and becomes spectacular with practice. Um, you just have to be willing to start and, and find those little steps along the way, uh, which leads me to one last bit of the podcast. Oh, yeah. One more thing. This is a place where I can rant, rave, tell you something to read, listen to, whatever's on my mind. And today on my mind are three amazing friends who have been able to take a big leap and make a change. A new career, a brand new business, you know, the things that sound super scary and often keep us stuck in a rut because we fear what could go wrong and we stay in a bad situation for a really long time out of just fear of change. And, and so in case any of you are looking for a change and looking for inspiration, these folks are here to share their experience, what they feared, what they learned, how it's going. They've all taken a big leap and sort of shouted down their inner worry warts, realized they were at this 
pivot point in their lives and decided to go for it. A um, couple more friends coming in later weeks, but let's start with these three. And let's start with my friend Kylie Enmark and what her life looked like pre-Giant Leap. That's what she said. Tell everybody what you were doing before the big change. Yeah, I was in management consulting. So I worked for one of the big four accounting and consulting and tax firms. And I was just traveling Monday through Friday, living out of a hotel, um, doing the consulting life for eight years. I was doing it for for eight years. So good chunk of time. Okay. What was the moment that you like, did you have a sort of lightning bolt moment of like, oh yeah, whatever I've been thinking about being unhappy or thinking about making a change, this is like the final sign I needed. Yeah, I was, um, you know, I was on the road for pretty much eight years and mostly to Indianapolis, um, stayed in Western Indianapolis for eight years. And uh, yeah, I walked into the hotel one time and of course, you know, the front desk staff, welcome home, Miss Enmark. <laughs> and uh, they were super stoked this one time that I was, that I, I walked in um, even more so than normal. And uh, they were like, oh my gosh, we have some great news for you. We have some goodies for you. I'm like, what is going on? And they were like, you have, you just, uh, this is your 365th night here at the Westin. Mm. And I was like, tears in my eyes. I'm like, I just stayed in this hotel for a year of my life. So yeah, that was definitely, you know, there were those moments like, you know, that gave me, gave me a little, little more of a nudge. um, The nice thing is they gave you the champagne to drink your sorrows with. So that's good. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I asked for, I asked for more than a bottle too. (laughs) (laughs) So a lot of people think a big change is one smooth leap, like the visualization of like leaping from one building to the top of another, but there's usually some stickiness in the middle where you're figuring things out. You remember Herminia talking about sort of dabbling and exploring and figuring things um, around you and in the spaces that were different to discover what you wanted. And that was the case for Kylie. She figured out she didn't want to work in consulting. She was sort of drawn to health and wellness, but how and where? And at first she thought maybe she'd build off her undergraduate degree. I took a a Kaplan course um, to prepare for my GMAT. And I realized like halfway through the Kaplan course, I'm like, this is not what I want to be doing at all that health and wellness thing kept, kept poking me. And so I started taking, um, taking classes to potentially go to nursing school. Um, that wasn't, you know, was not on that path in my undergraduate studies. So I had to kind of start from scratch with that. Um, I was taking, um, you know, science classes at a community college on the weekend because I couldn't tell my boss at KPMG that I was, um, you know, possibly going this, right. this total different route. Um, and then at some point, you know, I was just, I just, for whatever reason that didn't, that didn't like stick. And I knew, um, at around the same time I was, I just, I absolutely fell in love with, with my yoga practice and also just being at the, at these studios and being a part of, of that community. Um, every time I walked in, walked in the door, um, at, at 105F, it just, it did feel like home. Right. So the exploration, the hobbies, the new people and places we go help us figure out what we want to need. It turns out 105F was the how and the where for Kylie, a place to pursue her interests in health and wellness and helping people and a community that she had already discovered and loved. So she did her yoga teacher training, spent a year traveling in Australia, Bali, teaching and exploring. And when she got back to Chicago, she had a brand new life as a yoga teacher, a retreat and teacher training planner and more at 105F Studios. 
you know, I started teaching right away and then it's just been really neat what's happened over the years. Um, my, my yoga teaching job has turned into so much, so much more. Um, I'm actually able to use some of my businessy type stuff from, from all those years, which ma- makes my parents happy that like, you know, my, <laughs> my school didn't, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so I, I, I lead yoga retreats, um, teacher trainings, um, I do, I have my hands in a, pretty much everything at, at our studios here, here in Chicago. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been, it's been a blast and fun. And I just, every day I wake up excited to, to do what I'm doing. Okay. So I want you to look back at, to the moment that you told KPMG you were leaving and you quit your job. This is a well-paying consulting job. You're going to go off into some world that's completely unknown. What was your biggest fear at that exact moment? If you can remember it and not sugarcoat it, what was your biggest fear when you did that? The financial piece of it for me was the scariest um, because, and part of it too, Sarah, like I, I was willing to make, um, you know, I knew that I'd be taking a major, major pay cut. Um, but at the same time, I was willing to um, make some major financial adjustments in my life. Um, to be able to go this route. Um, you know, one of the things that I've always said is I, I, I never want to feel like I can't um, have experiences or go out to hang out with my friends or see my family or go on trips. And so I did, you know, work my butt off. Um, I still do to make all that happen. Um, you know, and it, whereas th- those weren't concerns before. So in the end, you know, her financial fears were warranted. She's had to make tougher decisions about where to spend and where to save her lifestyle or housing, all the things that drain our savings. But she said she would do every bit of it all over again. It all worked out for me. Like I always I always knew that if I didn't dive in headfirst and and take all these risks and and figure it out, that I would always wonder what if. That's what she said. So Kylie totally remade her life, but it is a life that remains the same in that she still has a boss. So what happens if the big leap you want means getting rid of the comfort of answering to someone else altogether? Let's hear from my friend, Sheree Bird. That's what she said. Okay, Sheree, so tell us what you were doing before you decided to make the big leap. So I was working for Lululemon um, and I worked in the store, but I also got to do a lot of the community aspect of it. So basically making connections with studio owners and getting into classes, um, getting paid to work out, which is a great kind of perk and bonus of it. And just planning events too, which is, as you know, one of my favorite things to do. (laughs) Um, So I really enjoyed that. And it was kind of, I started Lululemon, honestly, as a seasonal employee, just in my like figure shit out stage. Um, are we allowed to say shit? Yeah, Sorry. absolutely. Okay, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so like it could kind of blossomed into a long-term uh, thing from even that point too. Like I ended up at Lululemon for over five years. When you say your figure shit out moment or your period, what were you trying to figure out? Yeah, I had been working in nonprofit. And uh, so I had been pretty certain that that was my path. And I realized that I wanted to find a career where I could then volunteer and kind of be more in tune to do that on the side instead of that being my path. So a cool thing about Lululemon that Sheree told me is that it encourages goal setting for employees, a practice that helped her sort of figure out that even though she was happy there, she wanted to reach her long-term goals and that meant she needed to change. So what are you doing now? So I currently own uh, two studios now. It's called Shy 50. It stands for Core High Intensity, and it's a Legree Fitness mega former uh, studio. So it's definitely a much more intense version of Pilates. 
it is indeed a very difficult <laughs> challenge yes. all on its own. It is, I think every time I've left, I'm like, well, that's an ass buster. So it's like <laughs> just waddling on out of here. So Cherie started visiting studios across the country and internationally to learn what works, what doesn't, and what she might want her studio to look like. From there, it was definitely just looking at sitting down, trying to create a business plan and map out what does this look like and how do what do I need to make money? And with starting a new business, there's zero guarantees. So I had a good friend who helped. She's in finance. And so she looked over my business plan to at least comb through that with me. And I think the most important initial step is realistically look at everything, put it all out on the line and say, okay, if you do X, yes, you can make money. And is X feasible? I think what helped too is a big difference for me is I grew up with uh, my dad owning a business. So I also didn't have illusions of what owning a business is like. So what was your biggest fear? It actually was when I signed the lease on the physical space that I think I had that heart drop a little bit of, oh shit, we're in this now mm -hmm. because I'm committed. You know, you sign a lease, you're there for a commitment of, you know, whatever you've agreed to three to five years, sometimes 10 for people. And that was my reality shaker of there's no easy back out at this point. So now about six years after the opening of her first studio, she's experienced the ups and downs of owning a business, including a ton of lessons learned during COVID, especially with a studio that requires machines and is therefore difficult to translate to an at-home model. She's got two studios now open. She's making it work despite the pandemic. And she said the disruptions and challenges actually helped her figure out a better balance of time in the studio and her work and life outside of it. If I look to the beginning and then going through COVID and where I am now, that's been a really important step is just finding the kind of right balance of being in the studio, but also knowing that being out of the studio, I'm still accomplishing a lot, if not more, because I have that time to sit down and do other things. That's what she said. Okay, so Sheree and Kylie did the big thing. But what if you're not quite ready to quit your job and start your own thing just yet? My friend Mackenzie Reed is currently in the one foot in, one foot out portion of a big change. So Mackenzie, tell us what you were doing before the big change. What was the what was the big main job? So I worked for a uh, connector manufacturer. Um, I've had a few roles and promotions within that company. The most recent one being what's called a technology manager for standards development. Um, what that basically means is I sit inside standards organization calls uh, for this new technology called single pair ethernet, where we're writing the rules of um, how device manufacturers should use it as well as their customers in um, industrial plants and, and manufacturing plants. Okay. This is all stuff that like breaks my brain when I try to think about it. Uh, <laughs> a connector company does what? So we make uh, large industrial style connectors. So anything that's supplying like a large amount of power to machinery that's out in the okay. field or in, in um, industrial manufacturing plants. Like I've always said, if you've seen the show, how it's made, um, I started as a field engineer starting up that machinery. And then I transitioned into making the types of connectors that make those machines run. Mackenzie thought he was pretty happy doing that work until COVID gave him time and the same four walls every day to think about things. 
my job at uh, at the connector manufacturer has sent me all around the world. Um, I've gone to India. I go to Germany a few times a year and present in front of the board. I get to do really exciting things. Um, you know, I was in the French Riviera once for a week, just having <laughs> meetings. It was awesome. But you know, as soon as we all started sitting at home and uh, getting on Microsoft Teams, I really started evaluating um, whether I liked the direction that. I I was going or if I didn't. And um, it turned out that I didn't. And I had been pretty unhappy for a long time. Um, had talked to my wife, Christina, about that. So we both decided to see if we can make it work for me to uh, make a change. So tell us what you're doing now. Uh, so I have been making furniture as a hobby um, since around 2017. And between 2013 and 2017, I had just been making furniture for myself and for our home, but making it for other people um, from 2017 up until 2021. So I decided to form an LLC, um, give it a real shot uh, and create what's called a revivalist design where I do custom uh, furniture commissions based out of Chicago. So Mackenzie still works part-time at the Connector Company, but spends the rest of his work hours at Revivalist. And the big moment of sort of, holy shit, I'm doing this, was when he had to tell his manager at the Connector Company he basically wanted to cut his job in half. That was the toughest part because when you do that, it's real. Mm -hmm. um, and I had a conversation with him and the manager above him, and, and they asked me, are, are you really sure that you want to do this? Because we'll bring this to the executive management team but once that happens, like we're going down this road and, and we don't know where it's going to lead, but, um, but you basically can't retract it after we do that. <laughs> so we want to make sure that you're really wanting to do this, um, which, you know, I appreciated them giving me that option, but I was pretty firm. Mackenzie had to get used to a new schedule that involved mornings spent at a technology company as a manager writing a standard that goes to patent review, working on next generation technology, and then in the afternoon, creating furniture, running financials, quoting jobs, making sure he manages his own time. And like many people who make a big change, his biggest fear was financial. I've been, you know, keeping track of finances uh, pretty, pretty uh, well, I guess I'd say for the last eight years, you know, watching where everything is going and, and how much is coming in versus how much is coming out. This was a huge step into the unknown. When you look back, how has the reality of the choice you made uh, lived up to, you know, expectation? How is this current life versus the previous one without having decided to, to make that switch? Uh, one thing off the top is that the happiness factor is exponentially better. Um, and, and if I say anything to anyone about this topic, if you're unhappy and thinking about doing something else to take your life in a different direction, I would absolutely encourage you to take steps towards doing it. You don't have to quit your job tomorrow. I still haven't, but I'm taking steps towards being happier. That's what she said. Okay. Are you inspired yet? I hope so. I am. I loved talking to them and hearing the ways they made those big changes and took those leaps. If you want some accountability about a change that you're trying to make, whether it's a full career move, a new skill or hobby or something else, then join the do crew slash it list crew, still figuring out the name there, um, and message me. Tell me about the thing you've been putting off doing that you really want to do or you're afraid to start. 
shoot me an email, sarah.c.spain at ESPN.com. I love the emails I've been getting so far. So keep them coming and more on that to come very soon. Don't forget, you can always tweet me at Sarah Spain if you have guest suggestions, questions, dilemmas, or more. And you should always go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain or follow it. Uh, Rate it five stars, please. Give it a review. Uh, Thanks as always for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. 